just say a couple words and we'll see if this worked this time. Mama mia, mama mia. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, that that see without thinking about it, it suck. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, later. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's your favorite movie, isn't it? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> All right. So let's see if this worked, and then hopefully we'll get rolling here. No, this is your fabulous team of extroverts. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Try this, try this. Good See enough. how this sounds. Okay. Uh, where are you, my friend? Why am I not seeing you? I'd like to see you up top. There you are. Okay. So. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You want to see me on top? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually talking to the recorder, but yes, that did sound questionable. <laughs> I did one of yours there. You're feeling a little randy and lonely there? <laughs> <laughs> you know that's staying in. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, now that we hopefully finally have it on board. <laughs> uh, oh my God! Yes. Is there anything you wanted to lead off with, or do we just go right into the show? Let's go right into the show. <laughs> You're listening to Weird Scenes of the Gold Mind. You're essentially guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, the cult cinema of David Hemmings. Only here on the new and approved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network. Now on Con. Good evening, and welcome to the final episode of the seventh season, believe it or not, of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Anyway, like I said, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Actually, this is our, I guess this is our revamped, rebooted, revitalized version of the show because lately and going forward we've been doing character actors and actresses yes and we're really digging this you know like we're choosing doc savage has been coming up with fantastic ideas things i've had in the back of my mind that i wanted to do and uh yeah i'm along for the ride it's really good we're going to be talking about we have talked about and we're going to continue to talk about the careers film careers and maybe music careers who knows what these people <laughs> what other things these people do and we know some of these people go all over the place richard harris anyone that's for sure <laughs> uh, yeah right so we're really digging this. Of course, some of these people just do maybe too much work for us to cover. Like, we can't do some of our shows where we're covering a director and we cherry pick, or we're covering some actors and we cherry pick. You know, mm -hmm. the, the character actors, we definitely have to cherry pick. Oh, yeah. But we, we've been having a lot of fun with this, and it gives us a chance to, in preparation for doing these, these podcast shows, actually looking over some of these things and or revisiting some of these things, and uh, whether we like them or not, or you know maybe a second chance, like a movie that we thought was like, yeah, well, it's a little better, and the movie we thought was a little better, it was like, yeah, and <laughs> something that still remains good, that's always a nice feeling. Tonight's guy, David Hemmings, has like some fucking really 
<laughs> lengthy career. And so I don't know. It's going to be a surprise what what Doc has on his end, and what you have on yours, yeah, <laughs> and what I have on my end. But this will probably be a more concise show as as opposed to the upcoming Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland Donald shows Southern, that we have. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that we have planned for you. I mean, the, you know, those are also going to be good shows. But those two guys also worked a lot. Mm-hmm. But probably. Not as much as Mr. David Hemmings, because he did lots of bit roles. He did, did lots of supporting stuff before he finally got his groove. And he did brilliant takes and the most unusual things, the most well-remembered things by me. And then he did. He had a second career as a filmmaker, yes. director, mm-hmm. and then he moved to TV doing shit like <laughs> Airwolf. But, you know, he paid his bills. You know, uh, you know Airwolf, we all remember the late whatever his fucking name was, Jan Michael Vincent, no negativity there, you know, uh, the guy had gone through a lot of stuff, but but he did, he directed Airwolves, he directed uh, lots of TV, the thing with Tom Selleck, the guy with the mustache, you know, the porn mustache, what was that show? Magnum P.I. Yes, thank you, Magnum P.I., you know, the guy was all over the place, and I remember seeing him in uh, Gladiator, yes. uh, of all so nice little role there. They, you know, really, really tied up people's careers with that movie because, like, Oliver Reed's mm-hmm. last thing, and nice to see Debbie Hemmings in there, although he's looking like Oliver Reed in that one. <laughs> but um, anyway, so we're gonna go to you and get this role ball rolling, or okay. get the ball bowling, <laughs> whichever. Well, I'm actually going to jump back. You people will be like, wow, we jump forward and back. First off, I wanted to say... That's what we do. Exactly <laughs> what we do. That's why we both drink, folks. Uh, <laughs> last time we did the show, which I believe was the Schwarzenegger show, we had mentioned at the end that we had planned to do Michelle Yell for this one. And I just wanted to give you all a heads up since I you know, left it in. There was no reason not to. Why we didn't do Michelle Yell, which is honestly... Even though both of us have pretty good experience of her past filmography in Hong Kong cinema and uh, to the extent that she came over here, the trick is that it's a lot of years in the past. Now, it sounds funny when we're talking to people from the 60s and 70s, but we're talking about the mid-90s to the late 90s, and this is the era when people were getting things like VCDs and VHS and what have you, and just starting to convert over to Blu-rays, or not even Blu-rays yet, DVDs, Blu-rays and new technology that they were just inventing. I remember being at a certain company when they were making a big stink about look at all the possibilities of this new format because they were one of the guys that rolled it out and invented it actually and they had a, like, a little meeting a product demonstration downstairs and I went to this and I'm like oh look we can fit all these languages on these things and you know all these extras and whatever you can put so much information on these new discs and then I was completely disappointed when they rolled everything out and you saw there was jack shit on most Blu-rays <laughs> so they do not use the potential let's put it that way but nonetheless it was intended that way and at the time going back to the point here the technology that we had these things on, like all my Michelle Yeoh films were on VHSs and VCDs and God knows what else. So it, when I said, okay, let me go look up this stuff, I had maybe two or three Region 3 DVDs, maybe one or two that were actually, you know, viewable here, a normal DVD, but usually on a budget disc or some crap like that. And then, you know, I get a lot of my stuff through the library system, which is very good around here, and they had nothing. So, basically, of the God knows how many movies that I would have liked to have covered from Michelle Yeoh, which is probably in the, the range of 20 or so, Yes. maybe I had one or two she did with uh, Cynthia Rothrock, I had the one she did with Jackie Chan, 
one other one, I believe, somewhere buried in the collection. I have the Wonder Woman or Wonder Women, the one she did with uh, Nina Mui and uh, Maggie Chung, but I couldn't find that even. In the library system, there was nothing. Basically, what they had was Crazy Rich Asians, which... All right. I don't know. I, I wanted to kind of go off with this one for a couple of seconds before we get into the show itself. <laughs> I saw that. How I did you feel the about, about the movie? I took the missus because she really wanted to see it. Right. Uh, being Asian. Okay. And I look at the the cast. I'm like, oh, Michelle Yosin, I got to go. Yep. And, and you know what? I went with zero expectations, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. I, I, it because I've seen it all before. It was nothing new to me. Mm-hmm. It was a little over long. They could have trimmed about 10, 15 minutes from it. it. It was a rom-com. But you know what? I enjoyed it. It was predictable. It looks so fabulous. I mean, and you know, here I'm explaining to someone, I don't care about these people. Michelle Yeoh's in the movie. Who's that? <laughs> Doesn't she look amazing? Why do you keep talking about her? <laughs> because I got the how old is this fucking lady? I have no idea. I forgot. Fifty-ish. Yeah, she's pushing that. Yeah. She's pushing fifty. Fifty plus. Fifty plus. I mean, like, damn. Well, you know, Asians age well. <laughs> we notice. Then, then there's like bang. But uh, anyway, <laughs> who are you? No, I enjoyed it. I I have some friends that like were voice for us online, like. That's that's all right. It's it was fun. I didn't hate it, and you know I knew nothing about uh, what the fuck is her name? Aquafatina, whatever the fuck I imagined made up name is uh, the Asian comedian rap songstress. Mm-hmm. I had no idea who that was, and she had a big significant part as the friend of whoever the lead was. And I enjoyed her as well. So, you know, I didn't hate it. I liked it, and Michelle Yeoh was in it. Okay. I so, went into it knowing that Michelle yeah. Yeoh was in it, and knowing that Aquafina was in it, and I was familiar with her half-assed mm-hmm. rap comedy career, and I was familiar with her from the Ocean's Eleven remake, whatever the hell they call that, which, you know, she didn't have a big part in that, but okay. And I went into this thing, and holy shit. Just at core, I've been referring to it regularly as crappy, rotten assholes, because basically it's a celebration of tiger moms (laughs) and money (laughs) and how wonderful it is to have money. And every five seconds, they've got to stop to have another ridiculous, pointless dance number because, look, we have money. It was just... Yeah, but we knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucking obnoxious. And it's got the same problem. It's actually very much the same kind of, if you want to call it a movie, and I wouldn't consider it a movie, as that fucking Bohemian Rhapsody, which somehow... So idiot thinks is a work of genius. All right. Wait so, a minute. What a segue. Yeah. Well, it's the same problem because these aren't movies. They're commercials. This one here was a commercial for, yay, aren't Tiger Moms great? No, they aren't. They suck. <laughs> you know, Michelle Yeoh was a piece of shit bitch in this one. And her grandmother that she married into the family, this is the whole thing where she projects and she gives the new girl a, a lot of shit because she was also an outsider and got a lot of shit from the grandma. And they're like, oh, look, oh, the grandma, she's going to approve this. And she's a fucking piece of shit, bitch. The whole thing, like I said, there's no real plot. Except if you have never seen just how catty people can get. Like when they, you know, they cut up a pig or some shit and throw it on her bed and call her like a whore. And it's like, really? This is nice. But the fucking movie is just the same thing as Bohemian Rhapsody. In that this one's a celebration of money and Tiger Moms. And the other one is this ridiculous 
well, we know Brian Singer is also okay, fanboy thing to Freddie Mercury. And it's bad. There's Once again, there is no story, even less of a story than there was in Crazy Rich Agents. It's all just going from one music number, badly staged, well, bombastic, whatever, to the next one. There's well, no hold explanation. On, hold on, hold on. Right? Singer got fired from that. He got fired from that early on, and they actually stopped production for a bit. And the guy who was the editor was kind of talked into completing the movie. So I actually watched the Academy Awards, and for a movie that picked up quite a few, there was not a word uttered about his name, Yeah, which was really interesting. Even from Freddie Mercury, who won the uh, Best Actor. Oh, my God. How the hell? Okay. (laughs) And you know what? You know what? He did a very good – he channeled him. You know, Seriously? Uh, he, <laughs> no, he looked like the guy. He moved like the guy. That was fine. You know? Wow. It, basically, this movie, if you haven't seen it yet, the yes. message is nonstop cruising may mean you're not entirely straight. Uh, <laughs> there's like 15 scenes where he's supposedly like married to this girl and thinks he's straight and pushes away this one guy that later becomes his boyfriend. Like, oh, no, I'm not like that. But every time you see him at a truck stop, he's cruising another guy. This is like 15 fucking times. Every character's a cipher. Well, yeah. There's no actual plot or drama. It's not even like, if you've ever seen the anime Kaikan Phrase, which it's a really good thing about building a band and all the drama that can go on in that. And it's fairly realistic for an anime. You watch this thing, there is no drama. There is no build. There is no explanation to how these songs came about. It's always just he sits back uh, with his great teeth, we'll get to it in a minute, and says, well, I just didn't <laughs> want it to mean about anything. And that's it. And then you go into another bombastic, you know, stupid music video number, and then you go on to the next one. And there's nothing happening in between. The guy's got ridiculous teeth. I don't know how this guy won an Academy Award. He has ridiculous teeth and arrogance. And other than cruising, there's nothing to him but that. So he's like, oh, I have messed up teeth. Freddie Mercury did not have fucking messed up teeth. Yeah, they were big. He had a big pair of choppers. But he wasn't a freak. Like, this guy's wearing, like, hillbilly teeth out of a gumball machine and talking like this the whole time. I mean... Well, no, no. I, I, I was surprised he actually won that award. I no, mean, he's horrible. Uh, I, I would have handed it to uh, a bunch of guys who were really good that were up for that. But, you know... And, you know, okay, I know that Brian May and I think Roger Glover were, like, part of the uh, oversight team of this movie, but... Yeah. They would not allow one bit of dirt to come out. There was nothing. It was like I said. There was no story. There was no conflict. There was no plot. And, well, yeah, because yeah, uh, uh, well, no, because they they were there and and they know and they know shit that would probably blow our minds. And exactly stuff that right. Way. And they don't want it to come they're out. They're like, yeah, like maybe they walked in and Freddie's blowing like fourteen guys. You know, <laughs> like the but you don't even runs. need to do that. You still would have some sort of like drama of the band like building up. The best they had was, oh, I think I'm too important for you guys, so I'm gonna kick you out. And then they had the well, it's like up. it's like if they ever did the Rod Stewart story, right? Mm-hmm. I think everybody forgot the rumors of, of Rod and Liza Minnelli both on their knees blowing guys to see how much semen they can get in their stomach. Do you remember these stories? <laughs> I do remember that story. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, you're not going to see that in the Rod Stewart story. Well, I'll so, tell you that I met somebody that was a Rod Stewart fan, and I was mm-hmm. talking about, well, Rod the Sod, and, you know, his days with the faces, and all, when he was good, you know, hanging around Ronnie Wood and all that. Oh, they were horrified. They were thinking his bed, like, overweight Motown period. I'm like, uh, do you know this guy? (laughs) But the movie was just so fucking bad. If you have not seen it, do yourself a favor and don't. There's really nothing to it whatsoever. And not just one, okay, there's not enough dirt. I mean, there's no plot. There's nothing. I mean, I was like, why are we watching this? My wife sat there watching this. Is this over yet? 
is the, they could have condensed this into four minutes, and it went on for like two and a half hours. Awful, awful piece of shit. And Crazy Rich Asians, which is the segue, was the same thing. It was like, wow, there's a little bit more of a plot, but not much. Like, that's it, they're going to dance again? Oh, hey, look, look how much money they got. Oh, my God. Oh, I didn't mind it that much. No, I'm not saying it's the greatest thing I've seen. It's just, you know, it's all right. So, anyway. But what a segue. Yes. <laughs> so that's why we didn't do the Michelle Yeoh show, because that's pretty much all that we could review before, <laughs> before we were going to get on air. So here we are with tonight's show, which is actually David Hemmings. With his sleepy-eyed look and tousled blonde locks, he came across as some amalgamation of Robert and Chris Mitchum, with more than a touch of Paul McCartney as a finisher. Generally strolling through films as oddly passive, even disinterested, he could flip to a crazed enervation unexpectedly, leading him to serve as the ultimate outsider figure, either failing to react or overreacting to the events on screen in turn. Seldom a lead, but always a presence. He effortlessly shifted from star boy soprano under famed modernist composer Benjamin Britten to child actor to that rarest of transitions, a popular adult career in cinema as both actor and eventually director of film and television. Having starred in a handful of the most celebrated films of our time, Blow Up, Deep Red, even the strangely popular Barbarella, he'd wind down his career working through increasingly obscure parts in nearly forgotten films across the UK and Italy, before making a long and successful end run in American television throughout the 80s and 90s, where most of his directorial work took place. So join us tonight as we discuss the genre oddities and decidedly quirky career of Mr. David Hemmings, only here on Weird Scenes, Disreputable, the cult cinema of David Hemmings. This is actually another guy that was born to humble roots after we had done Connery, Stallone, and Schwartz shows. This time, his father was a biscuit salesman. Oi, yeah, have a picky. Those of you out there with a yen for the highbrow may appreciate his regular boyhood involvement with the composer Benjamin Britten, who featured him numerous times as a young soprano. Think Castrati or Vienna Boys Choir, but solo. I could never stand Britten myself, but, you know, it's a pretty notable tidbit. And by the way, supposedly you got to get your mind out of the Nambla gutter because Hemmings swore up and down there was nothing funny going on there. As you might expect, when Hemmings' voice broke, that was all over. So perhaps having a tiger dad or just being extremely ambitious at a very young age, he just stepped sideways into movies as a child actor. But it wasn't until he got cast by existential Italian New Wave director Michelangelo Antonioni in Blow Up that he became an actual lead and name. Apparently taking a role cast off by none other than Sean Connery, so there's another tie-in for you. Married for almost a decade to Gail Cunnicutt of The Wild Angels, Fragment of Fear, and Legend of Hellhouse fame, he had a strange career, which included quite a few quirky sci-fi, horror, and cult films throughout the 60s and 70s, and mm-hmm. is those that we'll mainly be talking to tonight. But as we move into the 80s and 90s, he started to concentrate on being a Hollywood television actor and occasional director, working on weird shows you'd never expect, like you had mentioned earlier, The A-Team, Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, Airwolf, and In the Heat of the Night and Quantum Leap, most of all of which he also directed several episodes of. Say, huh? <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with tonight. <laughs> Joe, is there anything else you wanted to get to before we just start diving in? No, let's go. All right, so uh, we've mentioned the whole thing with Britain and the child acting, and like he did a bunch of bit parts and shows you probably never even heard of. You know, I'm looking at these things like, oh, our man at St. Mark's, what? Our love story, The Ledge, or The Big Noise. Or, the f- who are these movies? I've never heard of these shows. So all of a sudden, like I mentioned, Antonio Odi picks him up, probably because of his look more than anything else, and puts him in Blow Up. Now... Well, uh, if I can just jump in there, yeah, he, he yeah he did this the war thing like sink to Bismarck, which at one point in time was was regarded. But yeah, like you like you just said, you know he's he had a look and but 1966 67 was you know I've been reading a lot of books lately by uh, by and about guys who were in bands in that time period in England and all of a sudden people started growing their hair out, growing their hair longer. Mm-hmm. 
and you know it was like a gender bending thing I'm not insinuating anybody was gay or not or I cared less if they were or not but there was that gender bender issue for the older people in Britain mm-hmm. when, when the guys would grow their hair out and, and David Hemmings looked kind of like he had this like a uh, bit of a thing going on with his eyes and was here growing a little longer he could be it would work for him McCartney-esque <laughs> yeah McCartney-esque yeah and 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 so by the time he got cast for blow up he had a look I think Antonioni was looking for and I'm going to hand it back to you now yeah so uh it's actually one of my favorite art house directors the existentially inclined Michelangelo Antonioni he steps outside his early greats like La Ventura and La Note to deliver only his second color film and it's a doozy whether intentionally or not, his typically dark view of humanity and our impact on the universe with cold buildings, wide-open empty landscapes, and barren streets taking primacy over the generally oblique and open-ended relationships and mysteries that the characters within them have to deal with, winds up capturing a unique moment in time in a way few, if any, films outside the lowest-budget cult and genre films ever do, namely, Swinging London at the heyday of the British Invasion, and I think that's primarily why it's remembered so well by people that aren't even into art house today. Appropriately casting the late-period Yardbird at that precise moment in time when both Beck and Page were in the band, transitioning from Mark II to the execrable Mark III iterations thereof, in place of the band that he couldn't get, which was The Who, there's a lot of swinging photographers banging hot models, which include huge names like Varushka, Serge Gainsbourg, longtime lady friend Chain Birkin, beat girl Julian Hills, druggy, psychedelicized hippie parties, loud, wild rock music with instruments being smashed, flashy Edwardian and miniskirt-driven Carnaby Street fashions, even Fu Manchu film and Hammer Starlet Sai Chin drops by. The plot of the film, like a lot of Antonioni films, but especially pronounced here, is elusive. It's even a MacGuffin of sorts. Events don't necessarily follow one on another, and there's no clear ending or satisfying resolution. Hemmings is a photographer who would miss all the expected bits of his daily life during this era, spends an awful lot of time purchasing and lugging around an antique airplane propeller, and at one point thinks he sees a murder which he photographs from an extreme distance. Of course, the titular blow-up proves little, given the tiny shadowy image. It's almost a Rorschach ink plot for the individual to project on. Or is that the director's entire point? Vanessa Redgrave pops in and now quite a bit. Someone breaks into his studio and steals the film that he shot. Hemming sort of investigates and sort of wanders aimlessly throughout the course of the running time. And it all ends on a mime tennis match, paging Shields and Yarnell. Interesting tidbit. Antonio's efforts here were considered quite over the top by the still extant Hayes Code, and the film's success, despite being released without its approval, was actually the final straw that led to its abandonment and the formation of the modern-day rating system, you know, G, P, G, R, X, and triple X. It's a fascinating film, quite visual and with an interesting soundtrack, but ultimately stands more as a snapshot of a brief but vibrant era than as a satisfying film or even among Antonioni's own filmography. I'm tossed up between preferring La Note, this one, and The Passenger Best, with Love and Tour trailing just a bit behind those. If it wins, it wins because of its swinging London setting, but not on its merits as a film, where nothing's really happening of any consequence or actually matters, and yet, seriously, that's the point. Yeah, it's a, that's, that's a very good take on this movie. My hat's off to you. Also, this movie's really well known for the only on-screen, well, one of the few, actually, it's more than just this movie, because people find shit over the years. But the Yardbirds with uh, Paige and Beck. Beck. And just a party scene. And, you know, they're in there. They flit back and forth, you know. And so that's in there, full color, nice. Yeah, you know, I, I it's very cool that this movie is like a, uh, you know, when you're developing film, you, you put the film, you know, back in the days, I was an amateur photographer much more than I am today. Back in those days, you had 
35 millimeter film and used to develop it yourself because it was too fucking expensive to do and you dabbled in that and I uh, I really this used to speak to me this film speaks to me more than you would think also like Cat on Nine Tails and other mm-hmm. oddball movies where there's like a odd shit going on and there's like a photographer developing his own film and sees things you know uh, it's interesting that when he worked with Argento it was like a almost quasi similar mm-hmm. role almost mm-hmm. almost like a an extension yep. you know dare I say it but no I always like blow up I found it I found it even though Antonioni's I, I don't want to say unapproachable I mean, you know, I really enjoyed The Passenger. I saw it in the theater when it first came out. Mm-hmm. But um, his his films also alienate. Oh, they're supposed to. They're cold. Yeah, yeah they're supposed to. They're cold. Well, much like lots of our favorite people we've been talking about over the years, too. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, our favorite filmmakers all over the place. They're cold filmmakers. And, uh, you know, a lot of the Italian guys we love have been aping Hitchcock since mm-hmm. day one. And a lot of the Italian guys who we love, therefore aping aping Hitchcock, who was himself a cold filmmaker. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, we, we we talked about everybody over the years, but um, I I enjoy this film for what it is, but it's it's still a movie that is odd. His he's very good in it though. I mean, it's like this big first burst as a lead. You know, mm-hmm. that's for sure. And I totally agree with you. We'll get to that later, but uh, I do believe that Argento was directly commenting on this film mm. with Deep mm. Red, and that's why he cast Hammocks in a very similar role. Kind of like, mm. uh, maybe someday we'll discuss, or maybe we mentioned it briefly in the past, Oliver Assayas, when he did Irma Vep, there was a direct commentary, and nobody seems to see this, even among critical circles, direct commentary and argument against the messages underlying Truffaut's Day for Night, La Nuit Americana. Yeah. But same thing here. That's what Deep Red was doing. That wasn't all it was doing, mind, but it, it's definitely a major part of it, and that's why he was cast in there. So you're dead on with that one. So after this, he does some more TV. He was in Camelot, you know, the big musical that people really latched onto. It made a big thing with JFK, especially after he got shot. Oh, JFK and, president of Camelot, but it was and it was it was a big thing for Franco Nero, who previous to that had done you know, Franco Nero, good looking uh, Italian guy, you know, he 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 done Django, Django. <laughs> and all of a sudden he's in this hugely budgeted fucking picture of Vanessa Redgrave, you know, mm-hmm. who he's been with ever since. People don't forget that. You know, talk about longevity, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, David Hemmings is in this along with a lot of other people. It's it's a beautiful looking musical that sadly a lot of people were overdubbed. I say sadly because you know I'm sure everybody had a good singing voice and you know it's the Hollywood star system the, the end of the Hollywood star, star system. And it's like I'm sorry, you cast 340 people for leads and they're multinational actors and they can speak well and clearly and even if they are not singers, you send them to somebody and you, yeah. you get them at least you know to stay in key and then we'll go from there. But, you know, a lot of these people actually did sing in this film, and uh, they they were white. You know, they brought somebody in to do it all over. But Camelot is an interesting film because, you know, it was a huge, prior to this, uh, a huge Broadway, off-Broadway musical it did all over the world. And then they kind of revamped it and tweaked it a little bit because, the, yeah, as you said, the JFK connection. And it's odd to see a 
Let me say, like an Excalibur-type film connected sort of possibly to what's going on in the world at the time. Yeah. But it was old-school Hollywood who made this movie. It was probably the last film directed by uh, Joshua Robbins, whatever fuck, whoever it was. You know, I, I forgot, but this was old-school Hollywood, old-school Broadway. But somehow it managed to be a little odd, a little different. And it's still one... One of these movies people don't return to. I find this very interesting, too. Being a, a, an occasional musical theater lover, no snickering. <laughs> I like damn Yankees. I like guys and dolls. Uh, you know, uh, there's problems with, you know, they're not entirely great films, but there are things I like about this. Uh, I don't like all musical theater. You know, don't, don't, don't leave the room. Come back. Come back. <laughs> but, no, there are, there are some things I like. I can watch those. I, they work. They work. I think I start and stop with Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> well, that's a problem, I think. It's a different show altogether. We could do a show on that. That, Catch My Soul. Oh, that was it's, great. But I don't think yeah, that is a musical, even though I guess you're right. It does fit into that. It does fit into that. And we could do a show on that because, uh, you know, a not heretical show. You know, we can actually <laughs> approach it. No, we can approach it from a middle ground and say, okay. But it was heretical. Remember the church cast them both out? They excommunicated. Uh... I know, I know. But I'm saying, I'm saying no. I, as reviewers, though, we can't come in with our own. Uh, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> you, you got me. Yeah. So, anyway, so Camelot, strangely enough, is not one of the movies looked back on. No, no it's very um, much of its day. Yeah, it's not looked back on fondly, which, again, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, people still say, well, Guys and Dolls, Frank and Marlon Brando, of all people, hey, it worked. Damn Yankees, Tab Hunter, Gwen Verdon, Bob Fosse, you know, just as, as, as samples of things I'm trying to pull out of my head. And not my brains! But, <laughs> but this movie, this is like very rare, few and far between people quote this bring it up although it's beautifully photographed i will say that but following this was like a strange film oh yeah and actually you brought up uh, frank on nero there and there's two things that i wanted to mention from what you said one being Please. that uh you're right about this more or less kicking off his career i think the next thing that made him huge was he was in one of those jesus films i don't know if it was the one that michael powell was in or if it was another one and then I also really like one he had done. You mentioned Vanessa Redgrave and him, where they did it together, and it was he was the painter that was going crazy. And oh like, yeah, that villa out in the woods. I can't remember the name. It's sort of a ghost story. It reminds me a lot of a proto Deep Red in a lot of ways. So it does tie in. Uh, but I can't remember the name. It was Quiet Place in the Country. Is that it? Yes, it was. Yeah, that's it was, it. That's a very fucked up movie too. Love that film. Very good film. Uh, Yo, actually, we haven't done Franco Nero. We could do that. Here we are. We're, we're discussing what we're going to do. Uh, in the, the, the not future. the first time. Uh, <laughs> not the first time. Uh, we've not done Franco Nero, who, uh, sadly, he's still alive. I, I've not met, and I hope to meet one day, because he's certainly a character. I understand he's difficult, though. I understand he's difficult, but it, I think he's difficult depending on how he's approached. That's possible. And, 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 like, you got to be smart how you approach these people. Yo, I've seen Franco do stuff where he's, like, fucking bored. You just know he's bored. He's mm -hmm. doing it. He's getting out. It's not even for the money. He's bored. He's just, I'll do it and I'll leave. But then I see Franco do, do something, and he'll put a little energy into something. Oh, yeah, I've seen him flip out in some movies, yeah. Yeah, oh, he flips out. Like in, uh, Tarantino's Django Unchained, or whatever that was called. Uh, Hell, no, even Hitchhike. Like, 
Hitch, well, hitchhike is different. <laughs> but like later Franco Nero, you know, yeah. it's it's like uh, I think there was a lot of the cutting room floor at that. So I think I think you know he probably invested himself a little bit more than we ever would see. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we'll probably discuss off here. Hey, that's a great idea. Let's add Franco to the mix. I actually think we will. Next up, though, for Hemmings was Eye of the Devil, which is a yeah. really strange one I always liked. J. Lee Thompson, of all people, who gave us two Planet of the Apes films, no less than six Charlie Bronson films, who we'll be doing uh, next season, the slasher Happy Birthday to Me, and a few other interesting canon films, like the mid-'80s King Solomon's Minds of Richard Chamberlain mm-hmm. and Sharon Stone, and the Chuck Norris Lou Gossett Firewalker. And we talked about those during our Camden show. Uh-huh. Here's Steps completely out of character to deliver a piece of very 60s weirdness. It's on the surface, it's quite occultic, but with this subtext of bourgeois versus beating a kippy free spirits, akin to a more serious bell-booking candle. Hemming's third major role, here's he's one of a pair of weird siblings who are A, both part of a rather small coven on his familial estate, and B, come off as oddly incestuous. Apparently it's a wicker man deal where the family winery's fallen on hard times, and they're using pagan methods to bring him back into the fold and land back up to snuff. Hey, more booze for us, right? Uh, it's rather <laughs> weird. <laughs> with Donald Pleasance trying to pass himself off as a vicar, complete with that stupid, you know, I don't know what they call it, the Bishop Cardinal hat that they wear at the Vatican. But... But but the odd thing in this, I, I have to say, this is just tasteful film. I never liked this movie. I don't know why. Was David Niven? I always liked David Niven. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and his role in this is like one of the few times, David Niven, who was like the go. You know, I I loved David Niven back since the forties and the Guns of Navarone, and the guy kept on getting rebooted and put Pierre until his unfortunate. Brush with uh, vocal can- voice cancer, where he lost his vo- uh, vocal cords. But I mean, this is one of those movies where, like, damn, I don't like this guy. Yeah, that's true. He is kind of icky in this one. <laughs> yeah, he is best. <laughs> if he at best, it's 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 a definitely it, well. It's also one of those movies that again, when it shows up in a, a Blu-ray or Arrow, whether Arrow will put it out, God knows. You know, it's like one of those things that are like, yeah, but it, there's something wrong with it. And I can't, never w- could quite put my finger on yeah. what it is I dislike about this film. It's an off picture all around. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like I said, Donald Pleasance has passed himself off as a vicar. He's got the stupid, I think it's the mitre, the thing they wear at the Vatican. He's some sort of pagan high priest. The, the film tends to conflate paganism, Wicca, and Satanism in a lot of these old films, which actually isn't as far off the mark as you might think, but the late Sharon Tate is in this one, who was yeah. in one of the Dean Martin, Matt Helm movies, Valley of the Dolls, Fearless Vampire Killers, and this, before being gruesomely slain by the Manson family, of course. And Hemmings is her oddly fey brother who seems a bit too touchy-feely with her and exchanges a lot of sidewise glances with her throughout. Yeah, like I said, there's this weird overtone of them being an incestuous couple there. You also get the ghost of Mrs. Muir himself, Edward Mohair, the statue and old Dracula, his own self, David Niven, prudish old bag Deborah Kerr, who was famed good 15 years prior for films like Black Narcissus, mm. King Solomon's Mines, and The King and I, who's practically top build here. Here she's pretty much in her dotage, only a few films away from retiring from the screen, so I don't get it. I didn't get her before. Well, if I could, she was in that <laughs> the huge bombastic Casino Royale. The, the, the other Casino Royale. Yes. <laughs> and there was that one, uh, I think, at the uh, episode with Peter Sellers going to the castle. I think it was the, the episode directed by John Huston, of all people. Uh, yes, right. 
And Peter Sell shows up as Bond. There are many Bonds in that Casino Royale, the Columbia one. Uh, he shows up at this McTavish Castle. Do you remember this? And, mm-hmm. and Deborah Carr, who no one in the world ever thought was, like, hot, was looking very milfy. And this translucent <laughs> gown out of something of a Jean Rolin movie. And I was like, yeah, okay, I can see this. It was like, okay, she's doing everybody in the castle. And she looked like she was drinking. <laughs> and, and, and she's supposed to be drinking. And that's a character. I mean, look like she was actually drinking. And then they're playing medicine ball. What the fuck is medicine ball? It's like a big, happy, <laughs> giant ball that guys throw at each other. Talk about, um, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, loaded symbology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, you know what it reminds mm-hmm. me of? The Owl and the Pussycat when uh, Streisand's telling uh, George Siegel. George Siegel about the guy that rolls eggs at her. She spreads her legs and he rolls eggs at her. He's like, that's disgusting. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there were some times when I would look at Streisand as certain films, and that's one of them, and I was like, yeah. It's true. That's Maybe. one of the very few I was like, hmm, okay. Yeah, uh, see, <laughs> we so agree good. <laughs> I was like, it's a weird film. I was like, wow, why was I looking at Streisand or whatever? Uh, yeah, 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 uh, see? Sick mind. The outfit with the hands on it covering her breasts. This, this, <laughs> the subtitle of our, of our show should be Sick Minds Think Alike. But but anyway, so anyway, what I so back to Deborah Kerr, though, uh, as you might expect from uh, from someone at her age range and basically about to retire from the screen, her role is kind of the same as Joan Fontaine in The Witches. Mm. She's a nagging old uptight bourgeois housewife getting all snippy and prim about the weird beatniks, oh, excuse me, I mean witches, hanging around the place and seducing her husband away from her decidedly limited charms at this point. The subtext is obvious and she's as hateful as you'd expect in this utterly thankless role, and yet she gets top billing, which is unbelievable. Her aside, it's not a bad film, and of witchy pictures of the area, I mean, thinking stuff like Horror Hotel and the, the Eagle, mm. Witchcraft, the one with uh, Lon Chaney, and The Witches, it works better than most. And I just could have done without her or her character entirely. And like you mentioned, there's something very off about a lot of parts of this film. Nice sets, an interesting cult-supporting cast, and Sharon Tate at her all-time slinkiest and sexiest, but I don't know. I mean, in one respect, it's like, well, what's not to love, and yet, yeah. for me, the next thing is Barbarella. Yeah, let's go to that, yeah. It's a typically over-sexed Roger Vadim affair, sadly without the charm of his first wife, Bridget Bardot, though she was vetted for the role, or the icy allure of another of his women, you know, Catherine Deneuve. All you get here is ugh, Jane Fonda. And it's not even the oddly likable, imperious, decadent Jane Fonda of Spirits of the Dead, but old Hanoi Jane and future workout clean and class A gold digger pretending to be an innocent candy-style ingenue in a world of oversexed aliens. Needless to say, it just doesn't fucking work. And she seems a rather bizarre choice and ill-fit for the part. She's even a couple years away from Clute here, so... It's yet another one of those very 60s pop art jobs, swiping from the same semi-erotic Italian strips that gave us much better and enjoyable films like The Tenth Victim, Baba Yaga, Diabolic, The Frightened Women, and the Valentina TV series. The main problems here is that it's played for humor, which never works. It's better to play it straight and let the campiness come out naturally. And secondly, that it's fond as brassy, humorless, disingenuous, and very middle American self in the lead. I mean, can you picture how much better this could have been with even like Monica Vitti or Ursula Andress in the title role, much less Bordeaux? You know, Jean-Philippe Law, who'd say Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic the same year, Sexy Witch and Stones Pass Around Anita Pallenberg, and infamous mime Marcel Marceau make as much or more of an impression than our ill-fitting lead, 
With Hemming serving as ally and head of the resistance against Palenberg's evil queen, he's pretty effeminate in his ersatz bondage gear, all chains, capes, and little leather panties and booties, having no-contact sex like Sandra Bullock and Stallone and Demolition Man, <laughs> which supposedly makes him so hot, he gets Yahoo serious hair from Jane Fonda. Seriously? But doesn't make as much of an impression otherwise. More fun for the pop culture references that came out of it. Duran Duran named themselves after the Mad Doctor here. Steely Dan after his metal dildo. Motorhead wrote the song and album Orgasmatron after a sex machine. Woody Allen borrowed it and other elements for Sleeper. And those are just off the top of my head, those four. I'm sure there's more. Interesting sets and weird concepts abound, but 1980's Flash Gordon was pretty much the same film, only ten times better. And with Ornella Muti to boot. It had its place in history, to be sure, but nowadays, unless you had some weird teenage masturbatory connection to it back in the day, you can stuff this one. It still looks fabulous, and it's still, the, the, the cinematography and the color is great. I mean, they, did was Paramount, I think it was Paramount, they gave him a lot of money. But this is Roger Vadim. Who would give a guy who made a few films that maybe were X-rated, uh, and not so much for hardcore, but this is back in the day when like a lot of sex was X-rated. Still, softcore by our values. Looking back, but it's it's a cold movie, and it's it's a very it's beautiful to look at sometimes. I mean, it's just like, I mean, whoever did the art direction, I think it might have been the same person who worked on Flash Gordon. Flash, ha! Um, He'll save every one of us. Dun, dun, yeah. Dun. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the, the art direction is incredible. I mean, this is 1968, and, and yeah. it's like, it's eye candy like we never saw. And, okay, you know, Jane Fonda at that time, she was like, breast delicious, and, you know, there's some <laughs> of that. And, I mean, she was too young to be Melfi, but, you know, it's it's like, it's weird. It's, but see, uh, let me say this. How do I say this? It's it's thoughts and its influences are from Fumetti, who is alien to anybody outside of Italy and, mm-hmm. and Europe. And the, the uh, what's that guy's name? Man- Manolo uh, Diarges, who did all those sexy Italian... Oh, the comic strips? Like Valentina, the comics, yeah. yeah, which they, they put into book form. Mm-hmm. It's just alien to everybody else in the world, and in, in, in the Western-speaking world, you know? And, and But still... And there were, was Paramount doing, like, big drugs back then? Maybe. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, how much money? Yeah. You want to build these big sets? Yeah. And if you're okay. doing that kind of, like, half-assed Euro-sex film max with all this big-budgeted sci-fi for the period, and very, you know, trippy and whatever else, mm, mm. why would you pick somebody... Looks aside, I'm not even talking about the way she looks. In fact, she's got big breasts and all that kind of crap. The thing is, she's not... The character, she is very middle middle American, Midwestern. She fits more in something like what Neil no, Simon's. No. Uh, what was the one that they had? California Sweet. No, was, do you remember the one she did with the, the, the husband and wife go to the hotel and they're having a honeymoon? There's honeymoon. Yeah, suite. same time next year, but that was later. Yeah, that's she's that kind of role. What the hell is she doing in this film? She's not sexy. No, no, but she was still viability as a international star at the time. Because of the Euro stuff she was doing. Like, she had done... Um, Spirits of the Dead. Spirits of the Dead. Which was great there. That was fine. Right, right, right. And that actually probably made enough money for people to say, blah, blah, blah. She was actually married to Vadim. Yes. Maybe. And I think that's why she got it. But Yeah. Uh, yeah. And But she also did a couple other things. So this is probably at the cusp of her... Hanoi Jane thing, and people don't know what we're talking about. It's, it's too problematic to get into. 
But um, look it up. Look it up. And, and, you know, it's not a good thing or a bad thing that she did. You know, hey, everybody's entitled to do what you feel. You know, and I don't know. We're like that now, right? With yeah. Trump. Yep. Yeah, okay. People start like, I'm deleting this podcast show. But, you know, fuck you. Good morning, delete this. Okay. We don't agree with this pig bastard motherfucker. But anyway. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> but we're, we're not going to say that. <laughs> anyway. Sure, we are. Fuck that. Yeah, I, I, I will drink a toast the day I wake up and find out he fucking died of a, of a Big Mac overdose. So, <laughs> hey, oh, my God, you're saying that about my lord and liege. I really you love know, when he did that great White House meal for all those uh, interns. They go, oh, yeah, great, I get to see the president. And he goes there and he gives him a bunch of fucking Big Macs. I'm like, what a trashy. <laughs> yeah, he's a pig motherfucking bastard. You know, and... and I mean, this is a billionaire, and, and, and it's just someone who, I mean, nobody respects in the world. Even the billionaires don't respect him, because he's not old money, and they know he's a scam artist. Yeah, know, absolutely true. Yes, absolutely true. So anyway. Therefore, we're going out to Fragment of Fear, I presume? Yes. <laughs> fragment of Fear is next. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anything's going to give you a Fragment of Fear, it's knowing that Trump's in the White House. Uh, but anyway... Trippy, druggy, 60s head trip of a mystery film. Hemings is a former junkie who's made a name for himself with his autobiography. Uh, I guess it's like uh, Bob the Biggest You Cat or whatever the hell. Uh, he's visiting his rich aunt when she winds up murdered. He meets the girl who discovered the body, who's his wife, Gail Honeycutt, and they get seriously involved. Meantime, he starts looking into the murder, and the cops are as useless as usual, only to have him start getting ominous warnings. Tape recordings, poison pen letters... Beatings on the street, gaslighting, even dosing with drugs is a frame. Who done it? Is it the most obvious suspect all along? Some interesting British cult actors like Wilfred Hyde White, Beast in the Cellars, Flora Robson, Man About the House's Toothy Mrs. Roper, Youth of Joyce, and Thunderbolt's Adolfo Celli fill out the cast here. It's quite visually flash, and there's still plenty of semi-funky, flute and drum bedecked hippie rock on the soundtrack. You have to wonder if this is what Argento is shooting for with Four Flies on Grey Velvet. It's very much in that vein. It's typical, enjoyable Saturday afternoon fare back when they used to show movies like this on syndicated TV. It's a bit frustrating given all the gaslighting and the frames, but it's not a bad film of this type and error by any means. In fact, however it sounds on paper, it's a pretty decent British thriller. Oh, I, I can't add to that. I actually agree with everything you said. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah, I, I can't add anything to what you just said. Yeah, I agree all the way. So the next one I was going to go to is Juggernaut. Did you need to cover any of the ones in between? Uh, I will say that there was this really unmanned wittering in Zigo, which is like, yeah, can you say that twice? Which actually was like this uh, mod kind of like fab kind of happening kind of movie, which I actually saw in the theater I don't want to say. What was 71. It? 71. Yeah, I was, I was teenager-ish. That was very popular, and it's just a uh, very strange movie about unlikable people, unlikable situations, unlikable characters. That's the kind of a thing that Hemings fell into yes. for a while, too. I mean, as good-looking as he was, there was, like, this thing where he would be in these movies, which were, like, you know, as, as we, when we discuss Eye of the Devil, you know, like, the themes are interesting, but the characters were unlikable. The themes were, you know, it was like this thing that was going on. But he kept getting cast for this. Well, he was cold. He, he was a very cold actor in a lot of ways. He was a cold actor. And it was interesting, like, of all people, Argento actually brought out something from him. Yes. 
which we'll get to there. So uh, next up is Juggernaut, and it's a quieter-than-usual 70s disaster film, this time hailing mm. from the UK. Terrorists arm a cruise ship with a bomb to extort money out of the cruise line. Of all people, they send <laughs> Richard Harris and David Hemmings to disarm the damn thing. <laughs> send two drunks. Naturally, Hemmings screws up the two-man operation, triggering a minor explosion and killing himself in the process. So it's all down to noted South Harris to finish the job. Beyond those two, you get Omar Sharif as the nervous ship captain, and Anthony Hopkins working the investigation and tracking down the culprit on the home front. It's a lot less political and obnoxious than similar fare like 1977's Black Sunday or Two Minute Warning, and far less bombastic and filled with washed up stars like the domestic model spearheaded by the likes of Irwin Allen, so I liked it. It's a comparatively quiet disaster film, if you can believe that. I, I find this interesting that I think a shop factory or somebody Maybe puts Scorpion, this out. Yeah. Maybe Scorpion, yeah, put this out again recently because it's a movie when it came out actually wasn't so bad. 1974 was like a weak year for movies and it kind of came out of nowhere and I was like, hey, this isn't too bad. Look at this odd cast. And this is about the point that we're attributing David Hemming's roles and alcohol to the same thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, apparently David starts imbibing a little bit much. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, He's unhappy, he's happy, I don't know, he's drinking, he likes to drink, who knows, we don't know, we're not judging the guy, but he starts to being known for just imbibing a bit much, and his movie's unusual, I mean, that it got made with two major drinkers. Uh, <laughs> and they're the bomb squad. <laughs> How fucked are they? the bomb squad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually a fun kind of picture, if it's, if it's tight. There's like two movies that are kind of similar in this vein. Neither one of them are huge hits. They, they did well enough. The other one was The Human Factor. Remember that? With George Kennedy? Oh, yeah. That wasn't bad. And, and so, so it's like, it's just two pictures actually around the same time period. That terrorists and uh, kind of have to do something. Juggernaut is a film that kind of fell behind, between, behind, beneath the cracks for years mm-hmm. but I'm glad I, I noted before that somebody just put it out in Blu-ray so I'm glad that somebody did so other people could check it out which leads us to I actually think that was Scorpion again they picked these oddball titles mm-hmm. that actually work like that I do appreciate them more and more as time goes on yes. especially going back like there's certain labels that I used to love and I'm like they're putting out so much shit and I don't really care and I go back and I'm like what am I revisiting oh the Scorpion ones oh the Kino Lorber that yeah. made a lot of Scorpion Kino involvement so, yeah. you know. mm-hmm. so anyway next up he does the one you were probably waiting for the whole show, which is he gets involved with Dario Argento for Deep Red. What by most accounts remains Dario Argento's best film. This mid-70s opus magnum moves well beyond his earlier, more typical animal trilogy of Jalos, without ever going over the top into the supernaturalism of Suspiria or Inferno, or the more modernist styles of Tenebrae or Opera, much less his long jump of the shark thereafter, the original version of Nonasano aside. Here he rests fairly directly on Antonioni's blow-up even swiping its star to ensure everyone got the connection, and yet another tale where events may not necessarily be divorced from meaning, but are certainly not what they seem to be. The idea that you cannot trust your own senses or preconceptions, or lean onto your own understanding, if you will, leads only astray from the truth. There's a lot of misdirection here, and there's quite a bit of examination of gender politics with a strong woman in the male role, a weak passive man very much in the female role, particularly if you go by Jalo or slasher film roles. Hell, the seat's even broken in her car, so he's not only the passenger, but made to sit so much lower than she does. Mm. It's a constant visual reminder of where he stands as much as comic relief. There's some very direct questioning of male sexuality in this film, not only in terms of the Hemmings-Nicolodi relationship, but in that of Hemmings to Gabriel Lavia and his tranny boyfriend. Mm. And of course, not to 
to give it all away, but it all hinges on psychology, specifically that of mother-child and just how much that relationship can skew and distort the life and future of the latter in the wrong maternal hands. If Hemings had a tour de force role in his quiver, it's not Blow Up, it's not his test run on Fragment of Fear or any of the other films we'll discuss tonight, it's this one. He's front and center throughout, gets about a hundred times the amount of dialogue as he had in films like Either the Devil, Juggernaut, or Blow Up, and is very much the protagonist, despite his inverted gender role, filmically speaking, or in terms of his relation to the winning but very much in control, Daria Nicolodi. If you'd like the guy, chances are it stems at least in part from his performance in this film, which is first rate. So, without getting too deep into Argento, because we've already done an Argento show, that's all I had to say on Hemming's role in this one. How about you? Oh, it's this is, for me, one of the very best Argento films. Yeah. It's David Hemming's best performance, I Best think. performance as an actor. Yeah, a, a British actor working for a foreign and Italian director uh, which he's done before we just talked about this but I mean the guy throws his all in there he trusted Argento and things you just spoke of you know the whole gender kind of thing there and sitting in the car and the seats <laughs> you know the seat the seat plops down and then Daria is like well I'm taller than you and she is taller too it's obviously yeah. a play on that you know she's like she looks like she's 5'9 five, 5'10 five, if not taller and how how tall is David you know and they play on this whole thing and it's very good and beside being among Argento's for me favorite three films of his mm-hmm. I mean, David Hemmings is just incredible in this. This is one of those movies that, how many times can you see it? I can still watch this thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. The walk down the corridor. Yeah, we know what's coming. You don't need to freeze frame it. Peeling the stuff off the wall in the old house. The peeling the stuff off the... The talk with God, remember? Mm -hmm. Who's (laughs) our buddy, Bud Spencer, right? Yes. Yes, that's his name, God. (laughs) And and it's just so much cool stuff in this film. And, And... and Carlo, who's uh, Gabrielle Lobby, who mm-hmm. is in Pupia Bodies, uh, the great Pupia Bodies. House of Laughing Windows. Yes. And Gabrielle Lobby had a lot of interesting roles in the time. He did. Uh, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but he had, he had some. And, and very, it's another guy, he's a gender bender kind of guy, especially him. Yep. Uh, very feminine looking. He's like Michael Powell, but even more feminine. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But there are certainly things going on in this film that years later, how many times have you revisited this movie? This performance is so multi-layered. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, you know, here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing, which we probably maybe have spoken of the many times we covered Argento, is that we know he didn't get along well with actors, and we know actors didn't get along well with him. I At this point, I forgot about these two guys. In any case, I think this is a, a point, maybe, where you had an actor, and you had a director, and the actor decided, well, if I'm not getting along with this guy, at least I'm going to try my best to try to interpret what the hell I'm trying to figure out what he's trying to do here. This is, a, again, you have to listen to our earlier show on uh, Argento movies back a couple of years, and uh, but it's, a, it's a terrific movie, great performance by him. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the great, great scenes in, in genre film is when he goes back there at night, he goes back to the yes. old house. Why would you go back to an old house at night when it's dark? But hey, <laughs> and he got a flashlight, right? And he walks up the mm-hmm. stairs, and the house is crumbly. And he thinks he sees something. He starts scraping away at the wall, and there's something behind the scraping paneling, which is funny because about 10 years ago, I lived in an apartment, and uh, 
I stupidly wanted to clean something off a wall, and I, I had a spray bleach. This is true. Keep this in the show. So I, I spray bleached a wall, and I wiped it with a paper towel. And I said, what the, what's that? What's that? And so I sprayed bleach it some more. I said, what's that? The paint's coming off. And then I seen drawings, childlike drawings. I said, <laughs> oh, my God, this reminds me of Deep Red. <laughs> so I did it some more, and then it, it freaked me out. I had to paint the wall over <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go into details, but I eventually moved from there. But it was like very weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, that's I have to tell you the story. <laughs> yeah, I gotta hear that. <laughs> anyway, Deep Red, great film, and uh, yeah. he's really good. There. So uh, he does a couple more films that I'm gonna skip over unless you need to cover them. The Heroin Busters is the next one I'm gonna cover. So do you need any of the ones in between? or? Well, he was in The Prince and the Pauper, which was cross swords with... Uh, he was Oliver. Um, Mark Lester. Prince and the Pauper was a kind of thing. It released in the U.S. as cross swords, and it was like a thing. And I remember it got a release at Radio City Music Hall, and I saw it, and I can't remember a damn thing about it. <laughs> So, a surprisingly aged and washed-up-looking David Hammonds, only two years on from Deep Red, serves as one of the two cops-slash-Asians hunting down a big drug connection, smuggling a shitload of blow and horse into Italy, with location footage stops all around the globe along the way, including Hong Kong mm. and the U.S. It's really all Fabio Testi's baby, and there's none of the usual let's-get-inside-this-guy's-head business. There's no girlfriend, family, or revenge rationale driving either of these guys. It's just cops versus drug smugglers wall-to-wall. It's far from one of my favorite Castellari films, or even among Poliziotteschi in general, but mostly remembered for its propulsively funky Goblin score, which comes off more like a Guido and Maurizio D'Angelo's one than what you'd expect from a prog band so closely associated with Argento. Hemmings gets more of the dialogue, such as it is, but think of him as the boss hanging around the office and checking in every now and again, with Testy as the action-driven, dialogue-light field agent. There's really nothing else to say about this one. Uh, yeah, it's two years on from Deep Red. It's surprisingly bloated-looking. Hemmings appears in this film, and it just kind of bugged me out a little bit. Like, it's the same guy? It's like, yeah. what's going on here? It was so fast. Yeah, so fast. But then again, maybe this is just like, you know... It, this this was the thing for a while. Actually, this was the change. The last time we saw David Hemmings look good mm-hmm. was probably Deep Red. Yeah, we re- we remember him still as like you know still looking really good. And this was the way he looked going on toward to the end actually because I guess he was cognizant of <laughs> working because you know, he he directed quite a few films that were pretty decent. He appeared a few films that were. We, which we'll probably cover, which I like. He did, he did a couple of shit things. He did a lot of shit TV. He yes. directed a lot of shit TV. Yes. But, I mean, you, you don't get work if you're a complete alcoholic. That's for sure. Yeah. We're not privy to Hollywood knowledge, so maybe I wish to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But he just looked bloated and heavy. And, and it's just like, you got to the point where, like, 10 years after this film, which, okay, 10 years, he didn't even look like the same person anymore. This movie here, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, Maurizio Merli was doing, had a complete career doing, you know, this thing with the... Dirty Harry versions of Franco Nero, because he looks sort of like Franco Nero in a vague way. Yeah, you know, Fabio Test, Merli, all these guys, and there were a couple of these 
these titles in this, in this thing. Uh, this is one of the more enjoyable ones because like two guys working together. A little bit of a shock to see Hemmings appearing the way he does. And a, actually a big shock. Just kind of like, oh, is that the same guy? Maybe he went to Italy and drank too much beer. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, it's a it's a fun film. It's for the genre that it is. It's it's, it's okay-ish. So after this, he actually did another one that I don't believe I've seen because it only comes under its Italian title, Squadra Anti-Rufa, which I think also had either Testi or who's the other fellow that was always in it, the Cuban fellow, cop on a bike, what the hell was his name? Million, Thomas Million. Thomas Million, yeah. It was one of those yeah. two guys in it with him. But again, I don't believe I've seen it. A couple other films like that. But then the next one that I wanted to cover was Power Play, one of the many forgotten gems of British and Australian cinema of the 70s, unearthed and reissued under the ages of Scorpion releasing and or their pals Aquino and Lorber, like we mentioned earlier. This oddity concerns itself with a pissant country run by a tin pot dictator and his Gestapo-slash-KGB-style secret police, who are headed by Donald Pleasance, and the military under him who actually have the balls to stand up and stage a revolution to overthrow them. Think of that happening nowadays. Hemmings is more or less the ringleader of the de facto revolutionaries, working with Space 1999's Barry Morse, who's sort of a Howard Zinn or Robert Reich type, who works out to find the details of the coup, and Looney Peter O'Toole, who runs a tank division and thus proves essential, if they can keep a lid on him, and all this while being stalked and snuffed out by Pleasance. I think all the folks, particularly those of the left who seem to be openly favoring communism of late, but certainly those of the right as well, need to see this picture because the ending is exactly what we learned from decades worth of revolution and guerrilla warfare and overthrow of regimes throughout Central and South America, not to mention Africa and other corners of the world, most particularly though south of the equator, that even the best planned revolution tends to just swap one dictatorship for another and another revolution brews. There's no end to it, and certainly we never achieve the goals intended. Is it a great film? No, not at all, but it is pretty damn good for its type and dead on in its message. Hemmings gets the undisputed lead once more, something that doesn't often happen in his career. Fragment of Fear, Blow Up, Deep Red, and this one are pretty much the only ones you get. So I did like the film. A uh, very strange movie, actually. It's it's a definitely a fall-between-the-cracks kind of film. Uh, it turned up on Amazon Prime in a wretched version, and if we all know... Oh, my friends and listeners, and, and I'm glad... Oh, I want to take a shout-out to uh, to a couple of people from Chiller who have actually come up to me and uh, who have been messaging me, saying they've been enjoying the show. Thank you so much. We, we really, both my co-hosts and I, really appreciate that. It's, Definitely. It's really nice that people are actually contacting me off-air saying they, they enjoy certain shows, they know something about certain people that they learned. Hey, that's, that's nice. It's nice to hear. And... Uh, Especially our more lucid moments. <laughs> <laughs> For all the uh, bullshit that you take on the internet, just talking to people randomly, because there's so yeah. many trolls out there, so many kids, teenagers that are just coming off of 4chan that don't jack shit about anything, that are convinced or want to convince you that they know more than you do. You know, it's people that live through history. Oh, no, we know better than you. Are you a freaking moron? And they are. So dealing with all that shit, like, 24-7, it's really important and nice to hear people that actually say, hey, you know what, I really appreciate this. This is cool. Because, you know, bottom line is we're not getting paid for this stuff. It's just we're doing it because we enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people out there. One guy in particular, Patrick, uh, thank you so much. I get people coming up to me sometimes when I do these events that, uh, hey, I've been listening, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of scattered, and I say thank you. And uh, we really do appreciate it. So, getting back to what I was saying, Amazon Prime. Oh, where the fuck they get these things from? I don't know. Bootleggers? I mean, they're a big <laughs> company, Amazon. Don't they have, like, 
litigators involved? Don't they know where, where they're so. getting this like bootleg quality stuff from? I mean, cheesy. Well, they do that thing. What is that? It's not synapse, but they call it a synergy, where they do like DVDRs, and they're all like these crappy like digital disc kind of stuff. Like, what the hell? It's sub cheesy flicks level. I'm, I'm looking at some of this <laughs> Amazon Prime stuff. It's like provided by Cheesy Flicks. I never heard of Cheesy. What the fuck is Cheesy Flicks? And then I see it's like I wouldn't sell VHS quality tapes back in the Blood Times video days as bad looking as this stuff. And it's and yeah, it's yeah. you know, people like over the house like, Oh, I'd like to watch it. No, you don't want to watch that. The quality is terrible. <laughs> Actually one of my favorite German soft cores from back in the there's a couple that never came out here, like Joy of Flying, Fleet on Flieg, Popcorn and Ice Cream, that's another one. Anybody see my pants? These are are they on Amazon? I don't who knows? I haven't seen it for years. But it's not since the days of Cinemax. But there was one that did come out on DVD, and I think it was like Fred Long Ray or one of his crappy companies. But it's an abomination. It was Erotic Adventures of the Three Musketeers. I always mm. love this thing. And one of the high points in it is they get this kinky old widow, and their big thing is, oh, the whip over there, it's what I want. And they used to use this as the ad for it on whatever it was on HBO or Cinemax or whatever to sell you to go see this thing at 11 o'clock or midnight or whatever the hell it was. And yet, what scene is missing from the shitty DVD that this guy put out? But that, I'm like, the hell is this? Why would they cut this out? <laughs> so, fuck you, whoever it was. <laughs> and somebody needs to put these things out in the proper prints. It's the same thing as you're saying. Why would you bother getting a subpar piece of crap print and just shoving it out to quick make a buck? Well, that's why they're doing it. But, you know, fuck you guys. We need people to actually... Yeah, I, I really have no idea where these things are originating from or, or why they even... You know, transmitting them. Back to this movie, Paraplay. I mean, it's a drinker's paradise. You got Peter O'Toole, yep. Hemmings, yep. Pleasance, Barry yep. Morris, <laughs> uh, pre, pre-Space 1999, where he kind of redeemed himself. It's an odd film for me. I, I agree with you, though, uh, about many, many of its positive films. Um, positive well, the message, tips. anyway. Yeah, people do yeah, the message. It because of, yeah. yeah. So next up, he does Just a Gigolo, which is actually, he kind of stars in it as well in a bit part, but he's it's one of his directorial jobs. It's one of Hemming's rare pre-television directorial efforts with David Bowie, Kim Novak, and Marlena Dietrich. Apparently, mm. it was much hated. That's about all I can say about it. I did see it once back in the day, but I don't remember making much of an impression. It reminded me of a, a much more boring take on Cabaret, I guess. It's that sort of a, a milieu. Yeah, it's 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 like the forgotten Bowie film for some reason. Really strange, you know, because you know, ever since his, his unfortunate death, you know, Bowie's has really grown in stature. Uh, yeah. uh, we we we've discussed him. We discussed his death. We discussed his career. We discussed his music. <laughs> Us and like ten thousand other people. And this is like the forgotten Bowie movie. This is around the time of Man Who Fell to Earth. You know, and Bowie was just dabbling in weird things. And this is certainly one of them. We got Sydney Rome, who was in that weird Polanski movie. I mean, was it called what? Was it that oh, one? yes. Oh, jeez, that was so stupid. Yes. What? And, and Kim Novak, who was, who was in her 50s at this point, probably still bowling everybody in Hollywood. And <laughs> you laugh, but think about it. So uh, <laughs> Bowie played a, a German officer re- returning to Berlin during World War Iran, you know, communism, Nazis, the rise of Nazism. The original cut of this thing was like over two and a half hours long. That says something. You know, I saw this a long time ago, and I have to say, I have not revisited it. Yeah. Revisited it, but I'm very curious to do so. 
because it's just I don't know it's it's just it sounds like something I need to see again don't <laughs> ask me why I will say though you mentioned Kim Novak you know you can't forgive Kim Novak because as much as he did stuff like Vertigo and Dull Book and Candle which I enjoyed she's the reason Sammy Davis Jr. lost an eye so <laughs> uh, those of you who know that story that. yeah well, those of you who know that story did we forget uh, that did we cover that? No, we did not cover anything with Kim Novak. But that was the other thing I wanted to say. Those of you who are curious about when we covered Bowie, like, where's Bowie? I don't see this. It was the uh, Toast of Those Fallen. It was in the beginning of a couple of years back when a lot of people that we cared about, mostly in music, but otherwise as well, had just passed on right around Christmas time or the beginning of the year. Mm. So right. uh, we did a tribute show, and a lot of it wound up being dedicated to Bowie for obvious reasons. Right. So anyway, I don't see anything else to say on this one. Uh, next up, we go to Murder by Decree. Yes. Overhyped late 70s reworking of the Sherlock Holmes mythos, where effectively Holmes takes on Jack the Ripper. It sounds exciting on paper, but it's pretty boring if lush for a low-budget costume drama, much as one directed by Bob Clark, whose resume includes such Alan Ormsby efforts as Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Death Dream and Black Christmas, before devolving into crap like Porky's, Baby Geniuses, and one of the many Dukes of Hazard TV movie reunions. Yeehaw! Plus, he gave us Rhinestone. Christopher Plummer is a doe-eyed, jelly-like Holmes, James Mason a doddering, wide-eyed Watson, and both Hemmings and Donald Sutherland appear at one point or another in the film. Hemmings is a de facto Inspector Lestrade, albeit with a different name and even less of a role. For some reason, people love this one, but it was part of a glut of piss-poor Holmes films from that era, which include Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, The 7% Solution, and Young Sherlock Holmes, all of which were differing degrees of abominable. This one's watchable, at least, but it's quite unimpressive. I mean, stick to Basil Rathbone, Arthur Wantner, or even Douglas Wilmer, if you prefer, or if you prefer, the cocaine-crazed Jeremy Brett, and forget this one ever existed. It just kind of sucks. Eh? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. I like this. A lot of people do. I like this. I'm not crazy about it, but I like it. It's cold, but it's also as cold as as, as the one with uh, Christopher Plummer. No, this is the one. This is the other one. No, the other one. Point Sh- of Terror, is that it? Is the 60s one? Yes, Point of Terror, which is John Neville. Yes. Sorry, Fox. Actually, Point of Terror, Study in Terror. Study That's it. That's it. Yes, sorry. Yeah, Point of Terror is the uh, Peter Carpenter one. <laughs> That's Diane Thorne. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Something enjoy that one. I no, no, that one. no, 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 no. I mean, the good, the thing with this was, is it, it was labyrinthian. You know, it, it's like the, for Sherlock Holmes investigating Jack the Ripper thing. I was really into this stuff, and I was actually at the point that this, ten years after this movie came out. So we're talking about 1990. I was thinking about writing a book about Jack the Ripper and all the various different. Seriously. All the various different things, and I still have an unfinished manuscript somewhere. There's been so many theories about it. I was always fascinated by it. I still am, but you know, every other week they're coming out with a thing saying, even just recently they went, "Oh yes. no, we've conclusively proved from DNA," and of course it was bullshit. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I was really into this stuff. So I like this for that aspect of it. I, you know, I thought that actually this is one of Bob Clark's more mainstream efforts. <laughs> yes, you know, Porky's. Hey. Uh, <laughs> baby I, geniuses, hey! <laughs> yes, these are baby geniuses. Oh, uh, I, I, I actually enjoyed this. It's very slow. It's very serious. It's very languid. David Hemmings with some rockin' sideburns. How about uh, what's his face there, uh, Don Southern, with that rockin' porn mustache? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, rockin' sideburns, rockin' porn mustache. We don't want to go there. And, and Susan Clark. 
who who's been forgotten by everyone. She died in 2007. Susan Clark was like kind of like the Margot Kidder of a of a time period before she passed. You know, she was in like uh, odd movies like Ben uh, Madigan, Coogan's Bluff, or Clint Eastwood. One of the airport movies. She did this. She, I think she was Canadian. She did she did a lot of TV stuff, and then she had cancer and she passed. But she was also kind of akin to like, uh, well, Margot Kidder was thin, but like a thinner Margot Kidder. But you know, if you like that thing, it's okay for you. Um, <laughs> He's like, where where are you going with all this? But <laughs> But no, I, I I don't hate this. I actually kind of like this a little bit. It's when you rewrite history and you fictionalize it, it's one thing. But the uh, I, I believe this movie was like nearly two hours, if not a little bit longer. So oh, yeah. that's that's another thing. You know, it's like. But wasn't Christopher Plummer one of the worst homes you've ever seen, and James Mason one of the worst Watsons you've ever seen? <laughs> no, I disagree. I like them fine. Really, really. Yeah, wow. I I, I didn't say they were great. I just like them fine. I've, right. seen, I've seen much worse. Believe me. <laughs> wow. Uh, so no, I, I mean, you know, we can't agree on everything. No, of course not. I, I, I just thought they were fine in this. I think the running time, and I think that deciding to handle something of this subject matter and uh, trying to fictionalize it. Okay, we're going with that. Then they tried to politicize it. And then tied into the Royals, which yes. many of the theories, you know, Jack the Ripper, many of the theories uh, over the years. Actually do that. that could, yeah, do that. I liked a lot of the things that attempted. So I like the film. I, I, I'd recommend it for people who are Ripperologists. I recommend it to people who, uh, like Christopher Plummer. I mean, Silent Partner is... <laughs> You know Silent Partner, right? Yeah. That's that's Christopher Plummer's fucking nuttiest, crazy motherfuckerness. But I'd recommend that movie. You know, uh, so we disagree. We agree to disagree on this one. Okay. There is for Plummer's like the Michael York of his time. <laughs> no, no. I, I, come on, man. Don't drag me down. Don't drag me down. All right, so. so next up, he goes to Thirst, yes. uh, which to me is a big improvement. Chantal Contori, the odd-looking but strangely quite appealing greek slash Aussie star of The Day After Halloween, gets the leading role in this bizarre tale that crosses the whole Jim Jones-Guyana thing, with Elizabeth Bathory and the conspiracy theory so prevalent after Watergate and the Kennedy, Malcolm, and King assassinations of the preceding decade. After getting peeped on during sex and having her milk containers filled with blood, she finds herself kidnapped by this weird cult of fanatics who hold court in a compound out in the middle of nowhere. Like her milk containers or her milk containers? <laughs> well, you hope there's something in there since it's part of her body then. Uh, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this weird cult of fanatics who holds court in a compound out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> that they... Uh, that they call the farm. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I do us both through a loop on that one today. <laughs> yeah, speaking of milk, uh, the farm. Uh, anyway, they, they decided that, <laughs> they decided that she's the descendant of the famed Hungarian blood countess, and they're trying to awaken her ancient lust for blood or whatever the hell. How come we're never nominated for a fucking uh, award? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. no. What, what do they call that thing? The 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 guy who used to be in the Sherlock Holmes movies. The uh, what? The video, Bruce? Yeah, video watchdog is always nominated for those things. Oh, Rondo Hatton. 
the Rondo. Yeah, Award. how come we're never nominated for Rondo Hat? I'm like, fuck you, everybody. You know, like, come on, you know, like seventy-four-year-old <laughs> people. Like, are you talking about the Universal World movies? You know, like that's amazing. I mean, come on, man. How many come times on. are you gonna talk about them? Uh, but anyway, this is a fun show. Nominated us, damn it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You don't Go have for to it. Nominate. We're, we're doing quite fine without being nominated for anything. Fuck you. But <laughs> but we'll take the nomination. We'll yes, take the we DVD will. commentary. Yes, we will. Call us up. And or trying to awaken our ancient lust for blood or whatever. Hello, lust for blood yes, or whatever the hell. I if I you know I see I see I see like cool people doing doing uh, commentaries. You know I see like uh, you know like the ladies that that are like you know. Oh yes, Cat and all those people. Cat and all those people yeah, like mm-hmm. I like I like the commentaries, you know, and, and I, I, I see I like the ladies doing it. I like to hear their they're they're like they're on board with us and I'm on board with them and I like the other view. Mm-hmm. If I see one more fucking Troy Howard thing, I'm gonna take my computer and rip it out and put it up the fucking window. Or how about the guy that used to do Fangoria, the guy that they always put on the uh, the Japanese and the Polizitashi ones? Like, oh my god, this fucking guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Posing with a motorcycle or some shit no. like he's cool. Fangoria put out this one book about two years ago, which I really enjoyed, exploitation films. And they did a whole book. Like, Mike Gingold write about this. Oh, please. I'm not going to Now it's a remainder. Go figure. But, you know, you know, yes, Troy, I'm dissing you on live radio because you're a duck. Uh, and you, your head is bigger than my dick, which which is not that big apparently. So if your head is any bigger, no, dude. So I can't stand that guy. I'm, I'm not saying anything, but yeah, okay. I hear where you're coming from. Let's put it that way. With a lot of these people, not just him. <laughs> Cat's cool though. But anyway, thirst. So back to this nonsense about the farm. They've got this compound in the middle of nowhere they call a farm. They decided she's the descendant of the famed Hungarian blood countess and are trying to awaken her ancient lust for blood or whatever the hell. As if Bathory wasn't just some vain rich psycho surrounded by quacks, but an evil vampire so that she can be their leader or what have you. All the locals are in on it, which she discovers during her big escape attempt. And it's run by this board of doctors who include Eurocrime favorite Henry Silva, some scary old bag who looks like a beefier Martha Ray, and Hemmings, who seems a lone voice of rationality and dissent, at least until the big twist ending. It's pretty dark and a bit too clinical, given how much of the running time is devoted to her time stuck in the cult and being monitored and screwed with, as if Clonus never left Paradise, whatever they called it, and it was more or less entirely set there in de facto Jonestown. But I liked it during my contemporaneous HBO airings way back in the day, and I still find it quite watchable, more akin to a particularly bleak episode of the Linda Carter Wonder Woman series than what I consider a horror film proper. I guess it could make a good double bill with Cronenberg's Rabbit, and Hemmings does okay with the part he's given here, so I still do like it. And like I said, Chantal Contori, I wouldn't call her you know super hot or anything, but she's interesting. I definitely have an eye for her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like some time alone? Uh... <laughs> It's a weird movie, though. It's, I mean, it's certainly a very strange film. Yeah. It's, it's also shot very bright, and most genre films are not shot very bright like as this is. And so yes. there's that going. Um, and then there's Harlequin. So next up, he does Harlequin. Hemmings is a rich politician whose son is dying. Doom watches Toby Wren himself, Robert Powell, who we mentioned earlier, also of the Asphyx Asylum and the aforementioned Harlequin. Uh, excuse me, this is Harlequin. And apparently he played my man, Gabriel D'Annunzio, the Italian decadent author. That was a fun show. We'd love to see that one. 
is the clown at the kid's birthday party who turns out to be some weird faith healer type. After he apparently heals the kid, he warms his way into the family's good graces, making pals with the kid, fucking the daughter, and gaining influence over the wife as Hemmings grows ever more hostile to him and what he's doing. Things get really confused towards... Things get really confused towards the end. Like a lot of Alcy exploitation films of the era. It's a strange film to see by <laughs> and related to a pair of equally strange films involving members of the same cast and crew, namely the aforementioned Day After Halloween, and followed by our next item of discussion. You didn't mention Brian May. No. The Queen. He did the score, yes. That's a strange score. Yeah, yeah. Brian May did the score from Queen. Um, oh, hold on. <laughs> it's a very strange movie. Um... Uh, I remember seeing it on VHS's Dark Horses, and then also Harlequin during the uh, DVD or Blu-ray reboot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's a bit of an impenetrable film because I just never got it. I don't get it. I, I well, there's it, that weird thing about Rasputin or whatever, but it's yes, it's just it's strange. It's a strange movie. Well, it's it's a strange film, and also like uh, around this time, Robert Powell played. Jesus, and yes. the very big... Well, was Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of Tolls, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think it was Jesus of Nazareth. He was very good, that, that five-hour freaking movie. And uh, he was very good in that, you know, despite what it was about. He was very good in the role. And it, maybe it was like a precursor to that, or maybe he was like gearing up that. It's just... Yeah, because the guy's like, is he? Are they hallucinating? Does he really have mystical powers? There's scenes in there. are like, what the fuck is this? Well, real? they're drugs. The and, that's the f- yeah. problem with the film, though. You're like, you don't know if this character has mystical powers or whether uh, he's, he's hallucinating, we're hallucinating. What is going on with the character? And it's just a big mystery. It's one of those odd movies that don't really connect with an audience didn't connect with an audience but has a bit of a fan following and and oddly enough oddly enough this director wound up doing after this things like the phantom with billy zane remember that yes wow that was a bad one too (laughs) or the last crocodile dundee movie crocodile dundee in los angeles like oh Oh, god (laughs) um we long for those moments of crocodile dundeeism (laughs) <laughs> but uh, it's a very strange movie. I, I, for me personally, impenetrable, and it's like you try to go along with it. Um, weird, for sure. It's got a cult following for some reason. I don't know who goes along with this thing. It came out in the recent two or three years again through Scorpion or uh, Screen yeah. Factory uh, in a nice sprint. It's just a very strange film. So uh, apparently he connected pretty well with Robert Powell on set because he takes him over to his next picture, which he directs, which is that he won's The Survivor. It's a really rather good Aussie film with the ubiquitous 70s British sexpot Jenny Agater as a psychic who tracks down Powell here in his second Hemmings-related film because he's the sole survivor of an all-casualties commercial airline crash. He's flashing on weird shit, she's flashing on weird shit, and some kids, or are they ghosts, are going around bumping folks off. What's really going on here? Joseph Cotton's floating around in this thing. If you've seen enough of these films, particularly good ones like Soul Survivor or Carnival Souls, you know pretty much what to expect. But it's nicer when you have likable leads like Power and Agatha to get you through the usual slow burn for Zom. It's surprising, considering this, that Hemmings directed so few actual films and such as some questionable later work in television, because this film is actually pretty promising. So... What's your take? 
Uh, I liked it quite a quite a bit, and actually, yeah. it's it's from a James Herbert uh, novel. James Herbert was this guy, a uh, British fellow. He wrote some really interesting, fucked up kind of books. The Rats and The Fog, nothing to do with Carpenter's thing. And uh, I really got into him. I was buying a lot of his his, uh, his no- novels and novellas and collections for a period of time. He died, uh, or he died earlier, let's put it this way. And this is based on one of his novels. And I had read this, and I said, well, I don't know if they can make a movie out of this. It's pretty and he did and you know he really showed his talent as a filmmaker with this thing and yeah Robert Powell they're, they're, as you mentioned you know their kinship friendship whatever hold over to this and Jenny Agarder everybody likes Jenny for medium budget they, uh, for for Aussie standards they managed to pull over a, a decent picture and actually won some awards in Australia actress uh, cinematography sound blah 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 and it's one of those movies that you don't see on Blu-ray yet. I mean, I, I presume at some point we will. It's very good. It's very quirky. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Yes. Yeah, same here. And so uh, now he more or less moves into TV. There's a few exceptions. He uh, directs Airwolf, the, the TV series, one episode, which is what the J. Michael Vincent, as you mentioned. He directs Magnum P.I., three episodes with uh, Tom Stalk and his porn mustache. He directs the A Team. How many episodes? There nine episodes. Good lord, with the B A Baracus. I loved when they had the intro. It's like B A stands for Bad Attitude. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm a freaking teenager. I'm like, get out of here. It's badass. What are you, a fucking idiot? <laughs> Love boulderizations. He directs a couple episodes, five episodes of Stingray, which I don't even remember really. He directs one episode of the new Mike Hammer, the one with Stacey Keach and all those bros with the big tits all the time. My father used to love that show. He'd sit there and watch it just because of, oh, look, this secretary or this bit player will walk through and show like jugs like, like you know, Triple E or something. <laughs> like, really? Okay, sure. yeah, but is there anything else going on? <laughs> well, if you if you dare like big jugs, why don't you just introduce them to porn online? <laughs> it was before online porn. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Come on, this is the eighties. Murder she wrote, God help us. So Jessica Fletcher there, she does one episode. In the heat of the night, he does four episodes. Actually, the two two parters with all Carol O'Connor and I guess it wasn't Sidney Poitier at that point. Well, actually, you know, some of his direction stuff for TV wasn't too bad. I was just surprised that that's how he ended up. He showed up in, like, a magical world of Disney thing, doing a Davy Crockett job. Mm. He directed Quantum Leap, three episodes of that. I think he was in an episode of Father Dowling Mysteries with Tom Bosley. Tales of the Crypt, he was in L.A. Law, Northern Exposure, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, which I think he might have directed as well. And then, and then he was in one of your favorite films as well? Yes. The closer to his career, almost, was The League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen. <laughs> And we spoke to this one pretty well in our Sean Connery show. More or less a bit part, though. Hemmings looks awfully sickly and bloated at this point. He's really looked bad. So it's not too much of a surprise, sadly enough, that he did a film called The Night We Called It A Day, which pretty much says it all, and then two more films, and that's it. He died, unfortunately. But, you know, you could sort of see it coming. You can't say it was a surprise. Well, well, I saw it four years previous when he was in Gladiator. Uh, He had had a smaller role in Gladiator, you know, Ridley Scott with uh, no, Russell Crowe Russell Crowe when he still looked like a human being instead of a bloated fucking uh, <laughs> I don't know stay puff marshmallow guy like, <laughs> remember those things where you were young you would put the quarter in the machine and it was like this gloop 
Yeah. And, and you squeeze the gloop in your hand and like. And you make, make the farty noises and. <laughs> yeah, we we'll go. And the gloop of like different figures and like yep. sometimes it will look like something and sometimes it just look like gloop. I don't know what the fuck is up with Russell Crowe lately, but his recent film roles, he looked like, he looked like gloop. So, um, <laughs> I really thought he was great in that pre predator reboot uh for the <sighs> the guy who did the movie with downey and kilmer director mm-hmm. of that and he did a movie with russell crowe and the guy who became anyway <laughs> the man who would be king <laughs> no 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 i i i'm gonna do it right now i will tell you oh my god you don't want to know what russell crowe looks like right now <laughs> Have you seen Mickey Rourke lately? <laughs> it looks better. Oh, wow. That says a lot. Oh, ouch. Yes, people, we're doing interactive podcasts where Russell Crowe looks like yeesh. <laughs> <sighs> I can't find it. Russell Crowe was a seedy Hollywood detective, and I believe the guy who was in Deadpool was his partner. Not Ryan Reynolds. You don't want one of the other guys. The other guy. The guy that was in Drive. Anyway, that that was like a really good Russell Crowe film, and he was like really bloated. I looked terrible in that as well, but in this thing, boy. <laughs> anyway, in Gladiator, Russell Crowe still looked like a human being, and it was David Hemmings and, and Oliver Reed, who was the last Oliver Reed film. Oliver Reed, which we spoke of during our Oliver Reed show, decided to go drinking with some American Navy men in yes. a bar and Oliver decided to like let's do a tit for tat drinking thing and he drank too much and died leaving the director in the quandary because they hadn't finished his parts <laughs> so they had to do the Brandon Lee thing would take what film footage they had and try to reposition and recreate his role so there's that now for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen which you dislike immensely <laughs> and I don't dislike as immensely. David Hemmings is subject of tonight's show, disappearing, as well as very a lot briefly. of people. Yes, very briefly. He doesn't look himself. I saw him. I'm like, oh, my God, is that David Hemmings? <laughs> you're older? The first time I saw it, I didn't notice. I'm like, David Hemmings is in this now. <laughs> yeah, 2003, older, bloated David Hemmings, a heavier, which... Yeah, sickly looking, I would have to say. And and uh, a year later, he did one other bit part. And then three years later, he did one other bit part. Then he was gone. Cause of death is kind of like up in the air. Uh, it said he he had a heart attack while doing his last film, but could have been brought on by years of stuff. Drinking. <laughs> yes. Lots of booze. But we, we talked about, I think we spoke to some of his better films. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And, and uh, it's always fun dragging up somebody from, from, from this era. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great David Hemmings roles. will be recommended to people to take a look at. Yeah, hopefully we covered them all tonight. And, uh, you know, even the ones that weren't that great, it wasn't like he was horrible. It was just he no. didn't get much to do. All right. You know, these are enjoyable films. That's why we cover them. So uh, next time. Born to a poor cockney fishmonger and charwoman, you know, the folks that come around after hours to clean the office. Michael Caine quickly discovered some important things about himself and the world around during a then-mandatory stint in national service, a shattering of ivory tower illusions about communism, and a zest to live each day as if it were your last. 
making his way up through the usual bit parts on television and film. His first big break came when cast in a fairly major part in a tale of a ragtag band of wounded soldiers against an army nearly 30 times its size in Stanley Baker's Zulu. Not long after, he'd make his way through a trio of films based on, and a few along similar lines to, the gritty, more realistic answer to the James Bond films, Harry Palmer, starring in well-remembered films like Alfie, The Italian Job, Get Carter, and The Destructors, cementing his reputation as a likable, down-to-earth leading man, before lapsing into paycheck jobs like The Swarm, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and The Hand, and more infamous fare like Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill and Joyce for the Revenge, before winding up cast as Alfred in Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and Dark Knight Rises. Somewhat controversial for his years in tax exile and his support of Brexit, the man nonetheless leaves behind a plethora of memorable film, both in the accepted and camp sense of the word, and to quote the man himself, not many people know that. From Brixton to Brexiteer, the films of Michael Caine. So, uh, anything you want to mention otherwise? Oh, yeah. So, when you guys tune in next time, you're going to hear lots of Michael Caine imitations and terrible as you may be. <laughs> as awful as I may be. It's awful. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's It'd be good. like friggin' uh, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, like the world's worst <laughs> comedy impression. Well, yeah, and, and we're going to have mention of the Steve Coogan uh, uh, film, uh, A Trip to Italy. You've Not seen many that. people know about that. Yeah, yeah. No, we're going to mention that because it's like two guys who are uh, chefs and they go, on a, uh, they go on a road trip. And they're real-life comedians and they're real-life guest imitators. Impressionist? Yeah, and impressionist. Thank you so much. Impressionist. Thank you. And and they start <laughs> they start imitating other people while they're having dinner, or lunch. <laughs> and, and it's, it's hilarious for that. And so we will cover a lot of ground with the Michael Caine show. Oh yeah, definitely. And and, and I dig Michael Caine. Um, oh, he's been him. rather quiet lately. I hope he's okay. Usually, it's always a Michael Caine movie. He's always appearing in something, even something. And you know what? He's up there. And but the next show, our salute to Michael Caine. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy our little drawing room chat on David Hemmings. Next time we talk Michael Caine. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us yes. a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And, of course, we're also on Podbean now, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. Or you could find us on iTunes. Just look us up under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Seeds Inside the Goldmine podcast. But if you need the specific address, it's itunes.apple.com, U.S. podcast, Third Eye Cinema Weird Seeds Inside the Goldmine podcast. And the ID is 55340244. You're better off just searching for us. <laughs> and it's free. As in free, you don't have to pay. That's it, free so. Yeah, yeah, like in Donald Trump's America, you have to pay very fucking But here it's free. Free. <laughs> so thank you all for listening seriously, and we appreciate you all for coming back and having a fun time. Yes. We'll and keep sending the positivity and the good vibes. Yes. You always use it. Yes, yes, yes. Very much so. Thank you for listening. Next time, Michael Yeah.
hello. So how are things going on your end? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I went out with my buddy and his friend that he grew up with and friends of his guy. We went out to that Hendrix thing in Long Island. So we went out there and we're about halfway through the first set. And usually he says, I'm going to the bathroom or you want a beer, I'm going to get a beer. So he just got up. Okay. So it's about three or four songs later. You know, we got different people. We got Johnny Lang, Eric Johnson. If you don't know that guy, that guy's fucking phenomenal. Sure enough, yeah. Cliff of Dover. Taj Mahal. Well, mm -hmm. you know, it's nice to see him. So anyway, he didn't come back for a while. So I'm like, I'll go over at the empty seat. So some some security dudes leaning over. There's two people next to me. The guy's shouting, you know, because it's really loud. Your name Lou? I said, huh? Huh? Yeah, why? You know, you know a guy named... Yeah. Come here, come here. So I go into the aisle. So I said, what's wrong? Your friend passed out, man. His head hit the door. The ambulance is here. I was like, what? What? So then I'm in the aisle, and I'm trying to catch the, this guy. You know, I'm like, hey, hey, come here, come here, come on, come on, come on. So we go out. He said, what's wrong? So this guy just told me he passed out. What? What? So we go in the concession area, and uh, I don't see nothing. And then we go to the doorway, and then there's another door to go outside. And it's like fucking tons of cops. Oh, Tons of BMS guys. He's on the floor. I said, "Oh fuck!" So I'm talking to the cops, like you know, typical Long Island cops. You know him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's our friend. What happened? We don't know. He grabbed somebody, passed out. We think his head hit the door. I'm like, "Oh shit!" <sighs> yeah, I wanted to go with them, but they had like the ambulance had like four EMS guys working on him because they don't know what's going on. So <sighs> I don't know. You know, he's. He's, he's, I know him for a long time. He's like my best friend, but he's not very open about certain things. Okay. So I think he may be taking medications he's not told me about. And so uh, we couldn't go with him. So we said, where are you taking him? And he said, Sayas Hospital. Like, where the fuck is that? And the EMS guy said, look, guys, it's a waste of time. Come a little later because they're going to see what's going on with him. You know, he's going in and out of conscious. Okay, okay, okay. So we go back inside and... It turned out, you know, they took a break after the first set. So I'm like, I'm really not into it. I'm like thinking about my friend, you know, what was you, you know. Yeah, it's normal. Yeah. And uh, Satriani came out, you know. He, <laughs> he, he did five or six songs at the end. Like, they gave him his thing. Yeah. The bass players from King's X. I, I heard of that band. I'm not so familiar with them. He's like this tall, lanky, light-skinned black dude. Yep. Yeah, he's very talented. And the drummer with, with Satriani, it was just a trio, was Kenny Aronoff. You know, played with uh, Mellencamp, Fogarty, lots of guys. Guys are fucking monster on the drums. But, you know, Satriani... <sighs> I've had problems with him since day one, and when I met him, that really cemented it. You know, it's, it's like, first of all, all three of these guys are bald. Yep. All three of them wear sunglasses. Yep. And I was like, hey, it's the visitors from V. <laughs> Or the sugar smack heads from Alien Nation. <laughs> yeah, yo, look, I'm not going to take it away. Yo, he's, he's good at what he does. We can't play that fast. I don't know about you. I can't play that fast. I don't know, but he plays fast. Yeah. And he lots, has lots of effects. I mean, he sounds like a fucking beluga whale sometimes. Like, oh, wow. Hmm. But I was more impressed with... Johnny Lang, who was a protege way back when, a buddy guy, and this Eric Johnson guy is fucking phenomenal to watch, and mm -hmm. some other dudes. And, you know, I was trying to say to this guy, you know, you know, everybody's like, oh, Joe Satriani. I said, you know what? 
when I hear your fingers on the guitar and you're making those notes and you're doing this stuff and the chords, I can hear your hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it sounds strange to you. That's my thinking. I, I hear what you're doing and I know how hard it is or, or how easy it might be for you. But I can hear it and I can hear your emotion coming through. Thank you. This. Yeah. And, and but with Satriani, I can't hear that. I hear I I see and hear a showman. Yep. You know, a PT Barnum. You know? That's been my problem for years. I used to be a huge shredhead. I still appreciate a lot of it, but I can't get into like, you know, Ingve or Satriani especially. Steve Vai, like a lot of people do. At least maybe at one point in my life some of them. I always had issues with Satriani. Well, oddly enough, Vai Satriani and this guy Eric Johnson who comes from fucking Austin, Texas mm-hmm. had toured a couple of times they were known as Guitar 3 they did, yes, they did this periodic thing but this guy Eric Johnson is just really good he's really he's good he's more from the and I don't think he's as good but he's more from the Gary Moore school of playing yeah. which is fine by me I don't have no problem with that but Satriani, it's like, eh, you're exactly right. I mean, that's what happened with me, because I used to be more of like a technical, flashy-type player, or trying to be. And I came back after I gave up the guitar for a while when my father died, and what brought me back was seeing, actually, one of the guys that made me pick up in the first place, which is Santana, doing, um, it was a Letterman, like, 10-year special or some shit that they did at, like, 8 o'clock at night, primetime. And he's out there with just, you know, a 10-watt practice amp, doing, you know, simple shit, and brought me right back. I'm like, oh, that's what I want to do. So ever since then, people that used to know what I used to do hear me do the way I play now, like hearing the show themes, like, wow, what happened? It's very different. <laughs> like, yeah, because that's what gets them. And that was the period when I was playing it, sitting with a lot of bands, you know, mm. sitting with the gospel groups, the R&B groups, the Latin groups, whatever the hell, for a sure, while. Sure, sure. And right. all of them, audiences would come running up to me, the other players, and they'd be doing all whatever the hell they were doing. And actually, one guy knew that I used to be a Flash guy, because I, when I met this guy, I was still doing, like, Randy Rhodes covers and things like that. So he was trying to play like that, even though he's more of a Keith uh, Keith Richards kind of guy normally. Mm-hmm. And I would just go up there and do this, you know, basically from the heart kind of uh, Santana meets Hendrix kind of thing. And people in the audience and other players and kids and people that, you know, whatever, all came running up to me all the time. You know, not to pat myself on the back, but the difference being that just going for the, the stuff that the kids make fun of nowadays, especially in metal. Oh, yeah, they're just doing pentatonics, they're just doing blues scale, whatever. It doesn't matter. That's the important stuff. That's the stuff that reaches people. You can tell somebody's putting something of themselves into the music as opposed to, okay, you play that game bass, wow, that's really cool and flashy, but it's just... Okay, yeah, and? And I get that problem with Dream Theater, too, to be honest with you. I know you like that. You know, there's, well, there's no emotion there. So I, I like Portnoy, and I like the keyboardist, and I like the band, if that makes sense. I can hear that. So, uh... But what happened with your body? So the show's over, and uh, so could we get in the car with these guys? Because I said, where's your car? I couldn't get in a lot. That's another story altogether. It was so sold out, <laughs> they made people park, like, blocks away. And this is in the middle of fucking nowhere, Westbury. So these two degenerate older bastards <laughs> they had a two-door car who has a two-door car you probably yeah, have a two-door yeah, of course they <laughs> so we got into this and then we drove us to his car and then so we go to the hospital and i talked to the doctor and like we're still doing tests and like oh man so now it's 12 30 i said hey you know what i gotta call his wife you know mm-hmm. i got i gotta make that call 
And so I called her and I woke her up and I said, uh, look, uh, it's Lou, we're in the hospital. What? Yeah, like, you know, this, something happened and, you know, I'm going to keep you posted. And she starts texting me. And then I call my wife because I'm usually home by 1 o'clock. And so this guy left at 1.30. I said, hey, you got to go. It's okay. Even though he lives about a half hour away. I said, I understand. He has a business and he has to open his business. I understand so I saw stay. So I'm contemplating taking a Uber or a Lyft back home, which is only about eighty, which is actually not bad from there. Mm-hmm. Back to Jersey. Come on. It's a long drive. Yeah. So it's actually pretty reasonable. And I said, you know what? I can't leave this guy. Yeah. Because there's just nobody here, you know. Mm-hmm. So he let me stay there, and so he would wake up, he would go back to sleep. He's on IV and all kinds of shit. So the doctor says we're going to take another test at two thirty. I'm like, really? <laughs> All right, what can I do? And I text the wife, and she's like, please call me after the test. I said, are you sure? Because you don't know when the results are coming, you know? And yeah. And a whole bunch of shit happened. So it was 3.30. They finally let him go. I had a call's wife, and I said, okay, they're letting him go. And I got three plans going. One, if he could drive, we're going to try it. Mm-hmm. If I see he can't. I'm going to make him pull over, we'll go into a hotel, and then we'll figure it out from there, or I'll call a car, and he'll have to come back out to Long Island and get his fucking car. Yeah, sure. So, he said he was okay, and that time tonight, morning, there's nobody there, you know? Right. So, we made good time, but as we got to New York City, I could see he was getting a little fatigued. I said, you are right. You are right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he dropped me off, and he's about, like, half a mile away, so, you know. So I got home at 4.30, Oof. and I uh, made coffee, took a shower, and I was out of the door by 6. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm at work, and then my boss decides to make a rare appearance, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, why, why, is something wrong? Well, you look, like, terrible. I'm like, oh, jeez, thanks. I took a shower and everything. <laughs> you look like you're falling asleep. I'm like, oh, but then my friends in the office like, you're right, Lou. I'm like, oh, jeez. I, I look in the mirror. I'm like, oh, <sighs> okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So is he all right? Oh, yeah. So he dropped me off, and then I figured, let me call him at night. He called me, actually, Friday early evening. It's like, thank you, man, man. It's like, hey, man, you know. Don't, don't thank me. It's, you know, yeah. You know, it's, That's what people do if you're friends. Yeah. So, I don't know, but, you know, <laughs> I got home and I crashed. You know, it's, you know, it's like... I don't blame you. <laughs> and, yes, yeah, so even today a little bit, I'm kind of, like, still out of it, you know, but, you know, work week starts and, you know, got to do what I got to do, you know. <laughs> but, uh, holy shit. That was crazy. Mm. So I can see why. Yeah, that's, that was a fun adventure. I, I, like, who breaks morning nowadays, right? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, it was easy. Like, ha ha, look, the sun's coming up, remember? That's the thing. I was telling my wife that she's used to me, like, hanging around, like, oh, no, I, don't, I never go to sleep. I'm always up at 3 in the morning or whatever. Lately, I'm, like, always beat. I'm like, fuck it, let's crash. Like, you know, 10.30 at night, 11 o'clock at night. And she's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, whatever, you know, go to bed early because we're always going, like, midnight lately. I'm like, trust me, I'd rather go earlier now. <laughs> I'm not the same guy I was. <laughs> uh, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, it happens. You age. What are you going to do? Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards light. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio.
Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 